Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. I've had the pleasure and honor to interview many world-class scientists over the years, but none better than Dr. Edward C. Stone, project scientist for the twin Voyager spacecraft for 50 years. Ed Stone oversaw the Voyager spacecraft's historic encounters with the outer solar system's giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, as well as their fascinating and at times surprising moons, including the discovery of active volcanoes on Jupiter's moon Io. A physics professor at Caltech, Stone also was the director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory from 1991 to 2001. Voyager 1 made headlines around the world in 2012 when it became the first spacecraft to enter interstellar space. A year later, Stone was honored by NASA on Comedy Central's Colbert Report, where host Stephen Colbert donned a spacesuit to present him with the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal. Mr. Stone, Ed, please rise. Please rise. Ed Stone recently announced his retirement, and so we wanted to pay tribute to his remarkable career by visiting with some of the people who have worked closely with him. Later on in the show, we'll hear from two of Stone's graduate students, Alan Cummings, who came to Caltech in 1967 and has been involved with the Voyager project since its earliest days. And we'll hear from Jamie Rankin, Ed Stone's last grad student who came under Stone's mentorship just as Voyager 1 was entering inner stellar space. Our first guests are Suzanne Dodd and Linda Spilker. Dodd is the director of NASA's Interplanetary Network of Deep Space Radio Receivers and the Voyager Project Director overseeing the Voyager Interstellar mission since 2012. Spilker was the project scientist for the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn and has been a Voyager science team member since its launches in the late summer of 1977. Suzanne Dodd and Linda Spilker, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And so we're kind of paying a little tribute to Ed as he heads off into the sunset, retiring from JPL. And the first question I have for both of you, and I'll start with you, Suzanne. Uh, when did you first meet Ed Stone? Um, I met Ed Stone in 1984 when I took the job at JPL after graduating from college. Uh, I My first job at JPL was on the Voyager project. Uh, I was uh, helping with preparations for the Uranus encounter. And Ed was the project scientist at that time, as he was before and many decades afterwards. Always involved, always gentleman would talk to anybody on the project and really special person. And what about you, Linda? When did you first meet Ed? Well, I first met Ed Stone in 1977. Uh, that's the year that I started at JPL and my very first job out of college. I was working with the infrared science team and was the interface between the scientists and JPL. And I remember being so impressed with Ed Stone with this large team of scientists, a little bit like herding cats, uh, trying to keep everyone uh, in line and together and, and trying to come up with the best science possible. And, and just so incredible to follow him. I worked on Voyager initially for the first uh, 13 years of the mission from launch essentially through the Neptune flyby and then went over and spent the next three decades on Cassini 
and used a lot of what I learned in watching Ed uh, in my experiences on Cassini as well. Well, Voyager is such a central part of the story of Ed Stone's life and career. Could you please, Suzanne, give us an update on how Voyager is doing? Because there was a little brief period of time there late in the summer where we lost contact. Yeah, we had a, a bit of a spacecraft hiccup. It uh, happened last spring on Voyager uh, 1. We lost the AACS telemetry data. Uh, we didn't really know why. Uh, we took uh, three or four months to to dig deep into the details to diagnose what happened. But um, the uh, cause of the telemetry loss was due to a switch in the flight data system that the flight data computer switched to the backup computer and we already knew that that had failed. So why it switched to the backup computer took a while to figure out. There was a, a, a bit slip. You know, I, I, these spacecraft are old. They're old. <laughs> so it's not uncommon to have uh, these kind of surprises or, or aging of the hardware parts. But we were able to restore it. We reconnected to the prime side of the FDS computer and the telemetry started coming back down again. Um, and since then, um, we've been operating normally, um, and we should be able to go forward that way. And of course, you mentioned that the, the spacecraft is definitely aging, and you've been showing signs of it for a while. Could, could you give us a sense of, for, for people who may not be, you know, as old as we are, to put it gently, be is involved in Voyager. Give us a sense of what kind of hardware you know we're talking about in software, because you know th this is not the kind of computer you have on your lap or in your hand with your phone. Could you just tell us a little bit about the technology you're dealing with? Right. Um, so Voyager was really designed in the early '70s. So the hardware and software that Voyager uses was state-of-the-art in 1975, okay? So you think about that, that's uh, yeah, 45 almost years. Almost 50 years ago. Almost 50 years ago. So I don't know how many people owned an Apple II computer. That was the computer that came out the same year that uh, Voyager was launched. So, oh, my. So uh, one of the big differences uh, between Voyager's computers and today's computers. It's just the amount of memory and processing that you can do. We, we only have 64K bytes of memory on the spacecraft. Um, it's less than what's in your car key fob. You know, when you push the button to open yeah. the car door, that has more memory in it than the Voyager spacecraft. Uh, but I think that simplicity helps us at times. It, it certainly helps us as we're so far away um, from the earth now um, and we have such long light times um, and we really trickle back data but not having to trickle back lots and lots of data is helpful to us now since the distance is so far and how far how far is it right now it's uh voyager one which is the further of the two spacecraft is 15 billion miles from us so it it takes about 22 hours for a signal to go from the Earth to the spacecraft and then for the spacecraft to acknowledge that signal and send it back to us is another 22 hours. So it's almost a round trip. It's just just shy of two days now. Wow. So. Uh, that is, that's awesome just to think about. It makes the, the hair on the back of my neck stand up 
what, what little is left back there. Okay, uh, let, let's get back to Ed. Linda, could, tell me a bit about him as a leader, as a mentor. Well, Ed was the type of leader. He was always calm and collected and had a plan for going forward. He was very inclusive in that. I remember at our Voyager Science Steering Group meetings, he would always go around the table and poll, ask each PI, what do you think we should do in a given situation? And sometimes he had to make some tough decisions because in especially in, in the flybys for Uranus and Neptune, we had a single spacecraft, a single chance to fly by. And of course, different teams would want to look in different directions. And so you had to make those tough trades. And so he would get everyone's opinions and then he would come to a conclusion about our best path forward. And he was really an excellent mentor because you he would always explain and you would understand why he made those decisions going forward. And they always turned out to be good decisions, the right decisions. Uh, in the case of Voyager 1 and 2, we flew by Jupiter and Saturn twice. And so we had a chance second time around then to go back and make some additional findings or corrections to what we had done previously. Yeah, it always seemed to me he's very in my dealings with him, he's just kind of a naturally gifted teacher where he could he could explain things really well to anybody. Right. Very gifted teacher and very good at explaining at different levels, whether it was to the general public or to the science team at hand, exactly what we were doing with Voyager and why we we're deciding to go down that path. And Suzanne, what would be your take on that? Um, well, I agree a hundred percent about him being um a teacher. When I came back to the project in 2010 as the project manager, I would meet him in his office at Caltech and uh, we would discuss sort of business related things like budgets and stuff. But then he would he would bring out the uh, sheets of paper he had with the most recent data from the CRS instrument and he would go through it with me and and really teach me about heliophysics and helioscience, uh, which is not my background. I'm an engineer by background, but he he took the, the extra time to teach me about the science and it was it was wonderful. It was like a, a, a personal tutorage uh, of, um, you know, the expert to the student. He was he was very gracious and very giving. Yeah, you talk about a master class. That's that's the guy to learn th those things from. Exactly. Yeah, I would agree with Susie. Absolutely. I know when I first came back to Voyager, you know, I'd come from Cassini and spending, you know, so many years orbiting Saturn to come back and really understand not only the heliophysics, but now the physics of interstellar space. And, and we really didn't have a lot of information. Voyager are the only in-situ spacecraft out there making direct observations. And he was very patient at explaining the science in general, the open questions, how we could go forward with Voyager, what we still needed to do to try and understand the space out there. And then just this, this desire to keep the Voyagers operating as long as we could, that dream of let's just get as far as we can into interstellar space. Linda, you could you know when you talk about going past the planets, you know it's spectacular images, you know pictures of Io and volcanoes erupting, mysterious Europa, the great red spot, Saturn and its rings, Uranus, Neptune, those spectacular pictures. But when it comes to crossing the boundary into interstellar space, not as easy for people to visualize what that's all about. Could you talk about Ed's talent at doing that? 
Right. Well, Ed was so good at explaining as we were flying by the planets, the pictures and the information coming back. And you, you say a picture is worth a thousand words, and there it was. And and now as we're in interstellar space and even flying through the heliosphere, now you have to take that information that basically squiggly lines on a plot and turn that into exciting information. And Ed was so good at coming up with analogies and pictures. One I remember, he even used his kitchen sink and the water flowing into the sink to show you the different locations in the heliosphere, including the heliopause, and to have these clever ways to really make it exciting for the public as we continued Voyager's journey. And of course, when Voyager was first planned, it wasn't even called Voyager back then. Uh, it was a Mariner, Jupiter, Saturn. They knew that there was this incredible alignment of the planets that was going to happen that happens only, what, every 175 years. And that would be a possibility to visit Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. But the original plan was just Jupiter and Saturn. At least that was, you know, what was what was planned on and budgeted for and that kind of thing. It's amazing to me that scientists and engineers like yourselves and Ed, especially being one of the leaders, were able to make this happen to where we we got to rewrite the textbooks about the outer solar system because Voyager 2 visited all four of the giant planets. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll say it truly is amazing. And I've read some of the uh, firsthand accounts from the engineers that were involved in building the spacecraft. And and my takeaway from that was that they they all knew that there was this possibility to get out to Uranus and Neptune, even even though the mission at the time was only funded for Jupiter and Saturn. But if they had any opportunity to choose, uh, say, a part that would last longer and slip that into the spacecraft, they would do that. You know, they would do that. They would not tell their boss that they used a higher rated part. Uh, they would just go ahead and do that. And it, I think that's characteristic, characteristic of the vision of um, the engineers and scientists too that were working on this on the spacecraft that they wanted to make this the most robust set of spacecrafts uh, possible because they had a vision that that these spacecraft could go far. I don't think they had a vision that they could get to, you know, 150 AU, uh, which is which Voyager One is beyond now, um, uh, or last 45 years. But they certainly felt um, that it was important to make the spacecraft as robust as possible and to give it a fighting chance to get past Uranus and Neptune and and as far out into the heliosphere as they could. Yeah, so that that's an AU is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, an astronomical unit. You know, that's just mind-boggling to think of over 150 times farther than that. Yeah, it, it basically it's five times as far as the distance from um, the Earth to Neptune, or basically the Sun to Neptune. Um, wow! So we're, wow. Voyagers are way, way, way out way there. Out there, yeah. Yeah, and I remember too that uh, I was there when Voyagers launched and thinking about getting all the way out to Neptune. I mean, that seemed so far away and that this both spacecraft would have to last such a long time. And just now in looking back, I remember after we had the second flyby of Saturn, then it was after Uranus, we're talking about how old 
Voyager 2 was at the time and how lucky we were to make it that far and then to get to Neptune and now so much further beyond and to really expand our neighborhood, our understanding of our own solar system and and just the, the legacy of discoveries, which is also part of Ed's very extraordinary career, uh, that he was there to be part of those discoveries and shepherding a, a, the team and the spacecraft as we went along. Yeah, and I would I would add that uh, we had to do a lot of uh, engineering uh, modifications just to get data from Uranus and and Neptune because it's they're so so much further out that the the planets are much much darker and there's less um, sunlight to shine. So so the instruments and some of the engineering team we we came up with some algorithms that. Uh, we were able to get rid of imaging smear using these onboard algorithms. Uh, we developed uh, different data compression algorithms so that we could uh, send back less data and still get the images since we were further away. And at the time, Uranus and especially Neptune, I think, seemed, like Linda mentioned, very, very far from us. Um, but now we're five times further out. So um, again, it's, it's just incredible how long the spacecraft have lasted. And I think it's really incredible how much science and, and new science and discoveries Voyager has made in its lifetime. Yeah, to think that it's still contributing scientific data now, you know, all these years later, it's just a testament to the robustness of that technology and the, and the wonderful work that you've all done to keep these spacecraft you know, as healthy as possible. Right. It's really, a, Voyagers have really been a pathfinder, not only for understanding the solar system, but it really changed our thinking, a paradigm shift in how we think about the planets, this possibility first revealed by Voyager that some of these worlds might have liquid water oceans underneath their icy crusts and have led to the Europa Clipper mission, uh, Jupiter's moon Europa that has a liquid water ocean under its crust, uh, Saturn's moon Enceladus, and then just changing our understanding about what's outside the heliosphere as well, that some of the predictions made early on are we're finding that it's a little bit different out there than we initially expected. And that's exciting because now we have to understand and explain what we're finding and what we're seeing. For instance, the magnetic field direction once we crossed the heliopause did not change to the interstellar magnetic field direction. We're still waiting to see when that might happen. And then the sun's influence seems to go out much further into interstellar space than we initially expected. We see basically the effects of from the solar wind, the storms on the sun propagating out into interstellar space and measured with the Voyager instruments. And of course, all of this incredible science over the years is so intertwined into Ed's career. You know, when I think of Voyager, the first the, the human being that pops in my head is Ed Stone. That's right. Ed Stone and the Voyager mission are really synonymous, sort of one in the same, that you have Ed's extraordinary career, all of the things he's done outside of Voyager, being director of JPL. And yet when I think of Ed Stone, I think of his leadership and direction of Voyager. And I think that will continue through the end of the Voyager mission, that he will be part of Voyager as both of those spacecraft continue out toward the stars. Yeah, I would say he, even though he's retired, he is still following Voyager and still interested in, in the science that's coming back from the spacecraft. Um, and he certainly is 
what Voyager is. I think uh, his lifetime, his career, shepherding Voyager, uh, he made it the mission it is, and you can't separate Ed Stone from Voyager. And Linda, as a project scientist for Cassini, was there any times you can point to that, you know, the, those were influences from Ed Stone and what you learned from him that paid off for you when you were working on that magnificent mission? Well, yeah, I had the opportunity to watch Ed through all of the planetary flybys on Voyager, and I was really impressed. And some of the, the things that I used in going on to work on Cassini as the project scientist there was that the ability just to listen, to carefully listen, and to be respectful of multiple opinions, uh, and in evaluating those opinions, really to explain and, and show that respect for the opinions and coming up with a solution. And and, and I agree to look at the big picture, not just at an individual's, what an individual instrument could do, but what is the contribution to the mission as a whole. And in going forward with the Cassini scientists was able to apply some of these same kinds of ideas to the Cassini mission as well. Suzanne, is there anything, you know, knowing that Ed and his family will hopefully listen to this when we're all done with it, uh, anything you'd like to say, to, you know, that you would like Ed to know what he means to you? Um, I just like to say thank you. Thank you for his friendship, for his leadership, for his guidance, for him always being there to answer questions. Um, and thank you for making Voyager such a such a remarkable mission um, for me personally. Um, I'm sure for Linda, for the folks at NASA, and for for the people around the world. Every everybody around the world knows about Voyager. So, and and that's all due to to Ed, I think, and his his guidance and his leadership. And then finally, uh, same question I asked Suzanne, knowing that Ed and his family will hopefully listen to this. Anything you'd like to pass along to Ed personally? Oh, I would just like to thank Ed and his family because they are also part of supporting Ed through his years on Voyager to thank them and thank Ed for his contributions to Voyager, for his leadership, for his example, and for really just bringing to the world this mission that was called Voyager and the excitement uh, and so and his enthusiasm about the mission as well. And I think his enthusiasm still continues as he continues to follow Voyager and what Voyager is doing and what it's returning. And as I said, he'll he'll be part of Voyager as we continue into the future. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about uh, your career and how it's been intertwined with Ed Stone's and his influences on you. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to our guests, Voyager Project Manager Suzanne Dodd and Voyager Science Team Member Linda Spilker. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us as we continue our tribute to the career of Ed Stone, the Caltech physics professor and Voyager's project scientist for 50 years, recently announced his retirement after a remarkable and historic career. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Let's continue now with our look at the career of American space science legend Edward C. Stone. Ed was Voyager's project scientist for 50 years and recently announced his retirement. 
Our next guest is someone who knows Ed Stone well and was one of his graduate students coming to Caltech in 1967. He's been a Voyager science team member since 1973, four years before the twin spacecraft launched on their historic journeys. Alan Cummings, welcome to Blue Dot. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your role uh, on Voyager? What, what, what exactly, what part did you play in that incredible team and are still playing? Okay, well, I started working on the Voyager project in 1973. As a, uh, well, I just gotten my PhD at Caltech, actually. And I was in charge of testing detectors and helping design the LET and TET telescopes to cosmic ray uh, sensor systems. And then, you know, after launch, I was uh, heavily into data analysis, which I've been ever since. Uh, so I started four years before launch on the uh, Voyager, our Voyager instrument. And of course, at that time, it was not called Voyager, was it? No, it was called MJS-77. And it was called that for a long time, all the way up until just shortly before launch, they changed the name. Yeah, MJS being uh, being Mariner, Jupiter, Saturn. And so that was really kind of all it was intended to do. But one of the most amazing things about the story of Voyager is that uh, there were people working in the background, uh, scientists and people that wanted to make sure that there was a possibility for this to do far more to visit all of the planets, all the outer planets. Yes, it was. Uh, I know my feast advisor, and he was actually the first principal investigator of our instrument. His name was Robbie Vogt, a professor at Caltech. And he made sure that they put enough uh, hydrazine fuel in there in order to uh, be able to point the spacecraft at the Earth to last as long as possible. So they made sure, he, he said he made sure they filled up the tanks. <laughs> yeah. And can you tell us about when did you first meet Ed Stone? I met him in 1967. That's 55 years ago. When I first got to Caltech, I got to Caltech as a graduate student in 67. And uh, I was working on balloon experiments at the time until 73. And there was, uh, <laughs> there was an interesting reason why I got to work on Voyager, actually. Because in 1973, in the summer, we would take our balloon experiment up to Fort Churchill, Canada, and put it on a balloon and fly it to the top of the atmosphere. And that's, we collected Data. I collected data on uh, cosmic ray electrons and positrons. And that particular balloon, uh, the company that was in charge of operating it and, and controlling it, uh, their uh, command to cut it down failed. And their backup timer, cut down timer, failed. So that balloon went around the world more than once, once and a half, I think. And then the Russians got it. I actually went over there to retrieve it re or point out parts that could be sent back, but it was damaged, heavily damaged. And um, so we didn't, we said we weren't going to rebuild that. And, and then, it, you know, Robbie and Ed said, well, we got this other project. You want to work on it? And that turned out to be Voyager, which is just, 
an amazing I was so glad I lost that balloon actually. <laughs> wow. So if you had not if that balloon had not have have done that, if it not worked out like that, you might not have been on the Voyager project. It's possible. I suspect that there was it was such a big project that they were gonna need help at some point and I probably Maybe would have switched off, but uh, it may have been delayed for quite some time because we were actively flying that every summer up at Churchill, and it would have probably gone on. Wow. And you were intimately involved in Voyager right up to launch. I, I, I saw a story where you were like kind of had some last-minute hands-on experience with it. Could you I, tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I believe I was the last person to touch the spacecraft before it was oh, launched. Wow. And I know I touched it because I have in my notes from 1977 that, uh, oh, yeah, this one was uh, needed to be tightened by 60 degrees. So I reached in and I tried to, they screwed on these uh, little foil uh, things. And so I know I I touched them right uh, before the launch. Wow, that's amazing when you think that, those spacecraft will likely be the the longest lasting artifact of our civilization that will probably outlast us Correct. for a billion years <laughs> yeah. orbiting orbiting the milky way and your hands were the you know possibly the last to touch it that's amazing yeah okay let's talk some more about ed uh, tell us about what he was like uh, for you uh, back then especially as a scientist to work with as a mentor Yes, he was amazing. Uh, I was probably the person he clo most closely worked with in science, it's particularly on the Voyager mission. We were in frequent contact. What was, amazed me about Ed Stone was his intelligence. Yeah, I think he was the smartest man I knew. But his multitasking was just incredible. I mean, he served as a... Uh, director of the JPL, for example, for like 10 years. And he kept running our group. We had a group of, you know, 40 people that he normally ran, and he just kept doing it right during the time that he was also the director of JPL. He would come home at night, and on the weekends, he would sign, you know, travel reports and things like that. Uh, but he also was very accessible, and he would w come into my office whenever he had a chance asked me where we were on a certain project. And I remember one time I got up at the blackboard and I was explaining something and we were discussing it and he got a phone call and he had to go immediately to Washington, to NASA for a big meeting. And he just abruptly left. And then three or four days later, he came back and walked into the office and we didn't say hello or anything. I just got back up at the blackboard and we continued our conversation. Wow. Our conversation. He was amazing. And as a scientist, you know, he was the project scientist for Voyager for 45 years. Uh, you know, just he's so intricately enmeshed in the story of Voyager. Talk a bit about, you know, as you as you look back at his career now that he's retired, what is what is his scientific legacy? What is his greatest achievements, you think, as a scientist? Well, you know, he won the Shaw Prize. Uh, in 2019, and it was for his efforts on Voyager, for example, mostly. And what he was incredibly good at is he knew something about everything, all the different phys uh, science that was going on in different experiments. 
And so he was able to lead the encounters, for example, where everybody wanted to do something that was beneficial to their own experiment. But he was able to kind of bring a consensus together. What is the most important thing that each one of us could do to make the whole mission be the best? And in order to do that, he needed to know what everybody was doing and what their science was like. So he was very broad in his intelligence about uh, science. When you look back at Voyager and the planetary encounters that happened uh, through the 1980s, uh, culminating with uh, the flyby of Neptune in 1989. Uh, can you take us back to what it was like to be part of those teams during those, you know, those really exciting moments of, of the planetary encounters? Because those are historic moments. Uh, and what was it like to be around him and the rest of those teams at times like that? That was very interesting because um, I got to go and sit in on those meetings uh, every day because he was the project scientist and they needed a representative for the actual instrument. Now, Robbie Vogt did it also, but sometimes he wasn't available. So I would get to go in. So every day they had a press conference. And in preparation for the press conference, the next morning they would have a meeting the previous day late and everybody would get their science together to make presentations and we decide what's gonna be covered in the press conference the next day. And that was very exciting particularly when the uh, volcanoes of Iowa were discovered. There was a big debate about whether those, uh, what what Iowa looked like was orange and black. As I often said, it looked like a poorly made pizza uh, or a student prank. That's what I actually thought. Uh, yeah, it was like you, you thought it was like some Caltech students were pranking us with that picture, those first pictures of Iowa. Right. That was, it was just totally amazing because yeah. it was sort of the first, I, expected all the moons to look just like our own moon pretty much just a ball that's just got pock marks all over it but man that was totally wrong everything was different and that was the thing that ed kept saying it was the diversity of what was dis being discovered was really amazing yeah that that, that i will never forget uh, the discovery of active volcanoes the the linda morabito story where she discovered that plume on Io, and you know, we actually saw, you know, in a, an actual volcanic eruption on another world as it was happening. I know. And the thing about the debate was going on in these meetings. They didn't see the before the plume, but they just saw what the thing, what Io looked like with all that orange and black, and and nobody at the point at early on they they wouldn't concede that it could be happening. Now they thought, oh, this is you know, got a mil millions of years old. This surface that can't be. Uh, just happening right now. And suddenly, Linda Morabito <laughs> shows us the plume. Wow. Okay. That's happening right now. Kind of settles that. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Okay. Let's fast forward to uh, another great discovery that you've been involved in. And that was the crossing into interstellar space, uh, which occurred in what, 2012, correct? Correct. Tell us about, uh, because that was not easy to just, it wasn't like there was like, oh, here's this moment and we now know we've crossed into interstellar space. There there was a lot of, you know, going back and forth about the data and stuff. Talk, tell us about how Ed navigated everybody through that. Yeah, well, we were all pretty confused. Um, our data, our cosmic ray data would have said, yes, we crossed. 
but we knew we weren't the definitive uh, answer. And because the main problem was that the direction of the magnetic field didn't change. So you're measuring the magnetic field of the interplanetary, uh, interplanetary magnetic field on the way out there. And it's, it's an Archimedean spiral from the sun that moves out. So it's got a certain direction uh, in space that's pretty fixed as you go. And it, it wasn't changing. But what we expected to happen was that the, you would go across the helipause and then you'd suddenly be measuring the interstellar magnetic field. That's a galactic magnetic field. Now those things, the interplanetary magnetic field and the galactic magnetic field should not be aligned. I mean, they, you know, total coincidence of some sort, but, uh, but it did, so the direction didn't change. So that threw everybody into a tailspin on whether we had crossed the heliopause or not, didn't seem to make any sense. Um, so that debate went on for quite a while, <clears throat> almost a year, I think. And we had meetings, we had, I remember going up to JPL and they were filming it for historic purposes and we have these phone calls back and forth and arguments back and forth and some pretty heated. Um, and finally, the plasma wave system, in my view, settled the issue. Um, they finally measured some what's called uh, electron plasma oscillations. And the frequency of those oscillations tells you what the density of the plasma is. And that density was way higher than what the solar wind density, which we had been measuring, uh, would be. So in my view, uh, and that's when we finally started publishing the papers about crossing the heliopause. Um, there are some people, a couple, that still don't think we've crossed. Uh, really? Yeah. There, there's two in particular. They, they've written many papers about this. Um, but they kept having predictions about what you should see and giving deadlines, you know, when that would happen and that, and this never happened. Uh, there's a very slim, tiny chance that they might be right, but uh, most of the scientists uh, believe we're in the interstellar medium. Well, one of the one of the most fun uh, things I ever saw Ed Stone do was he he appeared on Stephen Colbert's show, the which was then the Colbert Report, I be, I believe. And uh, did you get to see that? Yes, I did. That, that that must have been a, a moment. Yeah, that was fantastic. And then he got a, a big award, I mean, a, a medal from uh, NASA. By the way, the fellow that gave him the medal from NASA was at the time, was at one time a postdoc in our group under Ed. And he had gone on to become an astronaut, uh, John Grunsfeld. Mm -hmm. And he also was, a, he was the Hubble repairman. He went up there a couple of times and yeah. repaired a couple. But he was also at the time uh, a director at NASA for, for space science. So that was really cool what they did there. <laughs> Colbert comes out in that astronaut suit, you know, <laughs> to give him the award. Yeah, that was that was just absolutely great. And and Ed handled it so well. It was just like you could tell he was he was thoroughly thrilled and enjoying himself. Yeah, I think that's where he made the quote about uh, Voyager being our silent ambassadors after their uh, days of sending signals back as over. Stellar space. And these two spacecraft now 
will be in orbit around the center of our galaxy for billions of years. Really? Yes. How, they've been running for, what are they running on, by the way? Natural radioactive decay of plutonium creates heat, which is converted to electricity. So it's a very long-lived power source. We can keep running for probably about another 10 years. So it'll be dead by 20... 2025. 2025. And yes. after that, it's kind of a flying junk heap. Oh, it'll be our silent ambassador. <laughs> As you said, they're going to orbit the center of the Milky Way for basically ever, certainly billions of years. And uh, we'll probably all long be long gone. And that yeah. Voyager will still be there with that little golden record on it. That's our only evidence that we existed, probably. Well, I, my hope is that Ed and his family will enjoy listening to this program. Is there anything like you'd like to say to, to him and, and his family? Well, he has just been my mentor through my whole career. And um, he's really helped me and um, given me the opportunity to work on this fantastic mission. Uh, I worked on lots of other missions as well in parallel, but there's always been uh, a time I would say each week or day even that I've been able to work on Voyager as well. So I really appreciate, um, first of all, him hiring me into the group because I graduated in 73 and normally you leave and you go find another job. But he and Robbie were willing to hire me on as a research scientist and I really have appreciated that tremendously. Well, Alan, thanks again. I really appreciate you joining us because, uh, you know, I love Ed Stone and so happy to be able to do this. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Let's take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our look at the remarkable career of Ed Stone, Voyager's project scientist for 50 years, recently announced his retirement. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Our last guest is Jamie Rankin. She was Ed Stone's final graduate student at Caltech and now works on the Parker Solar Probe mission and is a Voyager deputy project scientist. Jamie Rankin, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. You were one of uh, Dr. Ed Stone's last graduate students, is that correct? Yes, in fact, the last grad student. Oh, wow. Uh, tell us about how you, how did that come about? Well, uh, when I was interviewing for Caltech, I wanted a job related to cosmic rays. And Ed Stone's group was at a very exciting time of measuring cosmic rays, both on Voyager, but also building a new instrument for Parker Solar Probe, which has gone closer to the sun than anything has been. And so they needed a graduate student. And I was thrilled by the opportunity to work with Dr. Stone. Wow, that's pretty amazing to think about. You're involved in two different uh, spacecraft, one that's gone closer to the sun than any other human-made object, and the other that's gone farther from the sun than any other human-made object. That That's pretty amazing. Yes, it has been an amazing journey. <laughs> All right, well, tell us about what was it like the first time you met Ed Stone? What, what was that like for you? Oh, that was incredible. That was history in the making. When I first arrived in Pasadena, California, 
I started graduate school six days after Voyager 1 had arrived in the interstellar medium. And so Ed Stone invited wow. me for my first day on the job to attend the Voyager Science Steering Group meeting that started kind of that day on that Monday. And I walked into this room full of world-class scientists, and they were engaged in a lively discussion about humankind's first in-situ measurements of interstellar space, although they were debating at the time if we had actually arrived. And at that moment, I uh, arrived and I was trying to uh, make myself unnoticed because I was a kid in her early 20s wearing sandals, shorts, T-shirt with a black man, black hole Pac-Man eating a bunch of planets. And, uh, and then Ed Stone was leading this meeting and he said, oh, hello, Jamie. And he, he introduced me in front of the whole group. And um, everybody was really excited, actually, to have a younger person involved. Um, but he was just so kind and welcoming, and he didn't want me to just sneak in the back. He was happy to introduce me to everybody, and that was pretty incredible. And talk about him a bit as your, as your teacher, as your mentor. What were some of the qualities that you've had working with him that you really appreciate? He was extremely patient uh, as I was learning new things. He would very gently nudge me in the right direction, but he was very patient for me to take the time to learn and figure things out. He was also very available. I was amazed. He was the busiest person I had ever met at the time, and and yet he would make time. It was never rushed when I when I met with him to ask him questions or discuss things, um, and and it was, that was incredible to me. Uh, just how how kind and how how much he he put people first, and he was never frustrated if a meeting went too long or uh, if there was interruptions. Uh, he really really cared about people, the scientists themselves as well as the science. And what was it about getting involved in cosmic ray research that that led you there? What what first got you interested in that? What has that been something you've been interested in for a long time? I was interested in cosmic rays because when I was figuring out what to do after undergraduate, I got a degree in music, degree in physics, deciding on what to do next, whether to pursue music degree or do more science. And I realized I needed a lot more experience to understand and do science. Um, I joined a, a collaboration that measures the highest energy cosmic rays ever recorded. And that's the telescope array project in uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah, right now the University of Utah, um, and the experiments in Delta, Utah. But I had an incredible year after my uh, graduation from uh, the University of Utah and figuring out what was next. I had an incredible year of just doing research on cosmic rays, and I loved the observational aspects of it. I loved particle physics itself because it's fundamental physics. Uh, and just the combination of all that made me realize I want to keep doing this. And then when I was accepted to Caltech, it was a cre an incredible opportunity to study those cosmic rays directly uh, in space by working with Dr. Stone. And uh, when when you think about it, Voyager is arguably the greatest space science mission of all time, certainly one of the most famous. Uh, the superlatives go on and on. When did you first become aware of the Voyager mission? And could you, you know, have imagined that you would be working on it someday? I first became aware 
when I was fairly young, maybe like 10, 12 years old, and and my dad was very into space-related things, the Apollo missions and Voyager, and he just loved talking about space. And I knew I loved science from a very young age, but I just never imagined that I would actually be able to work on a mission like Voyager. Uh, and I, I really didn't even know until probably the months leading up to starting graduate school at Caltech and uh, just the timing. Nobody knew when the Voyagers would cross the helipause and reach the interstellar medium. And that just happened. That timing just happened to work out. And so I was completely surprised. I think a lot of people were. <laughs> but it was amazing to have this opportunity. And that was in 2020, 2012, right? 2012. Well, let's. Uh, I'm hoping that Dr. Stone and his family will enjoy listening to this. Is there something you'd like to to pass along to him and his family to you know let him know how you feel about him and now that he's retiring? Oh yes. Um, I guess first off, I would say thank you to him so much for uh, for taking me on as a student. I know it must be a very interesting sort of risk to start with a brand new person that's never done things before and and build them up into a fruitful scientist and I am so thankful for his patience and guidance in uh, training me and helping me and enabling me to uh, get to where I am and I'm especially thankful for the opportunity to work on both the science instrumentation on Parker Solar Probe and also understand the data because those two things have set my career path in incredible ways. And, and he had a lot of insight at that time and critical time of my life. And so I appreciate that very much. Thank you for joining us to talk about your, your mentor and friend, I'm sure, Ed Stone. Thank you. Before we go, here's a clip from our old show titled The Blue Dot Report, where I interviewed Dr. Stone about Voyager 1 crossing into interstellar space. Here I asked him about what it was like to receive the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal on Comedy Central's Colbert Report, with Stephen Colbert presenting him with the award, clad in a spacesuit in December of 2013. How was that, and were you genuinely surprised? I was certainly surprised. I couldn't really imagine that I was getting a NASA medal uh, on the Colbert Report, but it, in fact, that's exactly what happened. It really made it a very, very special honor, actually. It is now my honor to present NASA's Distinguished Public Service Medal to Edward C. Stone for a lifetime of extraordinary scientific achievement and outstanding leadership of space science missions and for his exemplary sharing of the exciting results with the public. Ed... Thanks again to our guests, Voyager Project Manager Suzanne Dodd, veteran Voyager scientists Linda Spilker and Alan Cummings, along with Ed Stone's final graduate student and Voyager Deputy Project Scientist Jamie Rankin. We here at Blue Dot, which of course is named for the famous pale blue dot image taken by Voyager 1 in 1990, wish Dr. Stone a happy and healthy retirement with his family and friends, and thank him for his service to science and our space program. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that. 
on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at blue.nspr. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Shlom, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.